Well, Psalm 22 is a psalm for the God-forsaken. A psalm for the person who has shown up only to find out that God hasn't. Of course, there's never been a person who's experienced being God-forsaken to the extent that Jesus did while he hung on Calvary's cross, paying for the sins of his people. And so it almost feels expected that Jesus would make this prayer his own in his final hours on the cross as Jesus cried out, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In fact, it's not a stretch at all to say that this psalm in particular, Psalm 22, only reaches its fullest or truest meaning in the life and suffering of Jesus Christ. It certainly did articulate David's experience as it might articulate some of our experiences through our spiritual journeys. But Psalm 22 was embodied in Jesus' experience in ways that we could never know. In saying that, we need not be concerned that we're finding some meaning in the text that's not actually there, that we're stretching this to make it about Jesus, and perhaps it's not. No, in fact, the New Testament authors themselves saw Psalm 22 as a messianic psalm. What I mean by that is that as the New Testament writers looked back at Psalm 22, they understood that this psalm in particular was speaking about, it was foretelling, it was prophesying about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that was true not only because, as I just mentioned, Jesus quotes verse 1 of Psalm 22 directly from the cross. When again, Jesus is hanging there and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But also because they saw a fulfillment of the entire crucifixion experience, specifically in verses 16 through 18. And those verses culminate in the soldiers who were casting lots for the clothing of Jesus. In the Gospels, they directly connect that experience of Jesus to Psalm chapter 22. Furthermore, the author of Hebrews doesn't just apply verse 22 to Jesus. He actually puts verse 22 of Psalm 22 on the lips of Jesus. And he says that these are words that Jesus himself spoke when he writes this in Hebrews 2, 11 and 12. And I quote, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, and now this is a quote of Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two: I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. So although this Psalm was born out of David's life experience, Perhaps it is most accurate to repeat the words of Peter concerning another psalm of David. Being therefore a prophet, he foresaw and spoke of the Christ. That was from Peter in Acts 2.30. This psalm, like other psalms, is speaking of Christ. It is meant to direct our hearts and our attention and our focus to Christ, and in particular to the suffering of Jesus our Savior as Christ died for the sins of his people. Now, the psalm really has two main parts to it. It can kind of be broken in half. And so the first half is verses 1 through 21a, and that describes the sufferer's plight. The sufferer's plight. 
And then the second part of the psalm begins in verse 21b and goes through the end, which is verse 31. And that part of the psalm describes the delivered one's praise. The delivered one's praise. So we're going to start with the first one, of course, the sufferer's plight. And we begin in these first two verses with the sufferer's cry. The agony, the anguish of the one who is suffering. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Do you hear the desperation in the cry of the sufferer here? Why God? Why? This sufferer is in great desperation, great agony, great misery, crying out day and night for deliverance, but only receiving silence in response. Do you also notice the intimacy in these verses? It's my God, my God. This isn't the cry to some distant deity. This is a cry to a personal God, the God that David had known his entire life. And the father of Jesus, the one and only son. Now for David, why have you forsaken me in verse 1? Means why are you so far from saving me, which is the second line, or to put put it differently, it means this, why haven't you shown up to deliver me yet? So as David is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What that means for him is why haven't you shown up yet to deliver me from my peril? But for Jesus, this means something different. As Jesus is hanging on the cross and Jesus makes this prayer his own, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What that means for Jesus is, my God, my God, why have you made me the object of your wrath? See, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, Jesus was becoming sin for us. Jesus was becoming the object of the Father's wrath. He was paying the penalty for sin. So there was judgment involved in this God-forsakenness that Jesus experienced. He felt the full weight of our sins being poured out on himself. Jesus became a curse for you. Jesus became a curse for me. That's what Galatians 3.13 tells us. That Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And in Old Testament language, to be cursed by God is the most grueling destiny imaginable. You're separated from the goodness of God. Now, theologians will tell you that there is such a mystery in this that it's inexplicable. How could God the Son be forsaken by God the Father? We can't quite explain that. We can't probe the depths of that mystery. All we can say is that this cry from our Savior, Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, was not hyperbole. This was not an exaggeration. This was an extremely grueling experience for the Son. 
Now, it's important for us to notice here that David has not given up on God. And of course, Christ did not give up on the Father in his hour of trial either. David, although feeling God forsaken, Jesus, although enduring God forsakenness, both of them come to God in prayer in that moment. They're not fleeing from God's presence. They're not turning their back on God. They're not rejecting God or denying God. They're saying, what else can I do? I'm coming to you, God, even in forsakenness. I'm coming to you. I find this so encouraging because Psalm 22 gives us permission to acknowledge our sins of, of abandonment. It gives us as Christians permission to be honest before the Lord. We don't have to deny how we feel. We don't have to have a stiff upper lip when it comes to our relationship with God. We can be honest with the Lord. We can explain to the Lord, this is how I'm feeling right now. I don't feel your presence. I don't feel that you're near. I feel afraid that you're not going to actually deliver me. God can handle your fears. The key and the important thing is that we come to him with them, that we don't run away from God and flee from him in our hour of trial, but that we come to him with honesty and vulnerability. And we see a great example of that with David here. Verses three through five move us now to a few verses that become reflection. The sufferer here is reflecting on God's past faithfulness to Israel. So there's this cry of desperation in verses 1 and 2, and now there's a moment of conscious reflection. Look at verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And you are fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. David knows that his God, the God that he prays to, is the God of Israel. His God is the God who sits enthroned on the praises of Israel. And David's also aware that God has delivered consistently all of his ancestors. As they cried out in slavery in Egypt, God heard them. God delivered them. As they cried out with every single enemy that faced them, God delivered and God delivered and God delivered. And so he's able to recall God's faithfulness to his people in the past. Now, it's possible to understand this as an encouragement to David, that he's going, yeah, well, God, you've been faithful in the past, and now this kind of shores up his faith. But it's also to understand, it's possible to understand this in a different way, that this knowledge of God's past faithfulness to his people when they trust him only serves to make David's experience all the more painful. What I'm trying to say is that David's saying, hold on, you have, you have delivered your people in the past every time they trusted you, and yet you're not delivering me. What's going on here? Why have you not delivered me? And I think this is the right way to understand it because in verse 6, he's going to say, but I am a worm and not a man. So he's saying, you've delivered them in the past, but I'm in a different place in verse 6. So it seems that this awareness mentally for David that God's been faithful to his people in the past is making his own plight that much more painful. 
And it could be that this is the crux of David's anguish. As Peter Craigie put it, there's a contradiction between David's theology and his experience. Theologically, David knows God responds to the trust of his people. God is faithful to his people. He knows that from the Bible. He knows that from the history of Israel. So his theology thinks one thing, but then he looks at his own experience and he's going, hold on, this is contradicting that. This is not adding up. God's not being faithful to me and I trust in him. What is going on? And this can happen in our own lives as well. And an important question for all of us as Christians is what do we do when our theology is contradicted by our experience, or at least it seems to be contradicted by our experience. Now, this is going to sound so overly simplistic, but it is the answer. What we do is we go to God in prayer. We do exactly what David is doing. We go to God in prayer. And we go to God in the scriptures. David is recalling the truth of God revealed in God's past dealings with Israel. And we do that every time we look at the Bible. We see God's faithfulness revealed to us from generation to generation. So David goes to God in prayer. And this is what we do. And when we go to God in prayer, one of two things is going to happen. That experience will ultimately result in either greater clarity regarding your theology or greater clarity regarding your experiences. Let me give you an example of each. Many of you are familiar with the prosperity gospel or so-called prosperity gospel, which wrongly teaches that if you are a Christian, that God is guaranteeing you in this life, in the here and now, health and wealth and material prosperity, and everything's going to work out well for you. And if it doesn't, that's simply a lack of faith on your part. That's wrong. There was never a human being with more faith and more consistent faith in God than our Lord Jesus Christ. And he was broke and he was wrongly tried and he was executed at 33. Okay, the prosperity gospel is not true. But imagine being raised in a church where you genuinely trust in Jesus as your savior, but you're being exposed to wrong teaching like that. And then something bad happens to you and you're going, hold on, my experiences are not lining up with my theology. I don't understand this. I thought I was supposed to be healthy and now I'm sick. If you were to go to God in prayer and in God's word and spend time wrestling with these things over time, the spirit of God is going to reveal things to you and there's going to be clarification taking place in your theology and you're going to start to realize, hmm, this is wonky over here. This is not right. This is not true. And all of a sudden your theology becomes refined. What about your experience? Sometimes it's our experience that we gain clarity on. I want you to think about Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is a familiar passage. The apostle Paul, a great man of faith, has some sort of physical ailment or malady that is really, really uh, distressing him. And so he goes to the Lord three times in prayer. And he says to God, would you please remove this thorn in my flesh? Paul thinks that this thorn in his flesh, this physical limitation is going to restrict him and make him less fruitful 
in building the kingdom and in doing the work of God. And so he's coming to God and he's saying, take this thorn in the flesh away. I still want to go to Spain. I've got churches I want to plant. I've got letters I need to write. I need to evangelize. I want to see more people come to Christ. Take this thing away from me. You sent me as a missionary and an apostle to the Gentiles, and now I have this? My experience is not matching up with what I know to be true theologically, and then the revelation comes. And the breakthrough comes, and here's verses 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians 12. Paul says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And now everything changes. And Paul says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. All of a sudden, Paul now reinterprets what he thought was a great setback and weakness as strength and as part of the plan of God to use him more fully to build the kingdom in the months and years to come. And so again, what do we do? When we feel that our theology and our experience are contradicting each other, we go to God in prayer. And we wrestle with the Lord there. And God gives us clarity over time. The fact that God's people had constantly experienced deliverance as they trusted in the Lord, and yet David isn't, leads him to conclude that he's less than a person. He says, a worm and not a man in verse 6. These verses bring us now to the sufferer's humiliation. A worm, of course, is not a mighty creature. It's not talking about a lion or a tiger. It says, I'm a worm, a lowly, disgusting creature. And that's exactly how his adversaries treated him. He is scorned and despised and mocked in verses 6 and 7. As they taunt him saying this, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. See, David as The king was known as God's chosen one, the one that God delighted in, but all of that is being questioned now. They're mocking him. They're taunting him. They're saying, if that's true, then God God should deliver you, right? What's going on? And how much more so is this true for Jesus, who of course was the chosen one, the Messiah, but he was actually God's son. And the people scorned him, and they mocked him, and they ridiculed him. In Matthew 27, we read this starting in verse 39. And those who passed by, this is Jesus at the crucifixion, derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross So also the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. And then notice how similar this is to the verse we read in Psalm 22. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Jesus also experienced this great humiliation as the crowds of people stood around him and mocked him and ridiculed him and made accusations against him. Are you really the son of God? Are you really loved by God? If that were true, then how in the world would God let you die on that cross? 
Jesus, like a lamb led to the slaughter, opened not his mouth. Well, David's pain was intensified, as I mentioned, when he thought of God's past faithfulness to Israel. And now it's intensified as he thinks of God's past faithfulness to him. Verses 9 and 10 bring us to reflections on God's past faithfulness to David. He says, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. David knows that he was set apart from birth. David knows that he was chosen by God. David knows that God has shown him great love over the years and that he belongs to God. And based on that knowledge, it leads David to prayer. Verse 11, he says, Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Verse 11 is the sufferer's prayer. He's finally asking for resolution to the problem of verse 1. Notice his prayer here in verse 11 is for God to be near. His issue in verse 1 was that God had left him. God was not there. So this is the prayer now. God, be near to me. In verses 12 through 18, he moves back now to expose the danger. We see the sufferer's danger. We're finally going to get a glimpse of what is going on around him, what he's faced with. Look at verse 12. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now he refers here to his adversaries as bulls and dogs and lions. And even wild oxen down in verse 21. Not butterflies encircle me. Bunnies surround me. No, these are big, strong, mighty animals. He sees his enemies as being many, there's plenty of them, and as being mighty, like lions. Now, some of you are going, dogs, that's not a very strong animal. Listen, this is not labradoodles. Okay, he's talking about wild dogs. They hunt in packs, they're scavengers. They come and they attack and they bring you down. These are all pictures of violent and dangerous animals. And this is the way he sees all of these adversaries that are around him. His life is in mortal danger. All of this prefigures the violent mob that attacked and assaulted Jesus on his way to the cross. Remember, he entered the city of Jerusalem, being hailed and praised as the Savior, the Deliverer. And only a few short days later, in that very same city, he is surrounded by hordes of people who want to see blood. They want to see him nailed to the cross. They want to see him killed. And they're spitting on him. And they're slapping him across the face. And they're punching him. And they're pulling out his beard. 
It's a terrifying scene. Verses 14 and 15 describe a person who is actually on death's doorstep. He's laid in the dust of death. Now, verses 16 through 18 are especially significant. They really are a picture of the cross. Many scholars have noted that there really is no other way to understand verse 16 than to see this as prophetic about the cross of Jesus. Crucifixion had not been invented yet at the time of David. And so this idea that they would pierce his hands and his feet is a prophetic vision of what is to come to another sufferer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Tim Keller writes this. He says, this Psalm of David poses a puzzle. The speaker's hands and feet are pierced in verse 16. His bony frame exposed in verse 17. As he experiences fatal dehydration in verse 15. This is not describing illness or persecution, but rather an execution. Nothing like this ever happened to David. And the usual cries for justice are absent. It's as if this were a punishment that, though not deserved, must be submitted to. Jesus understood this psalm to be about his death. Here then we have something remarkable. A look into the horror and agony of his heart described by Jesus himself. Reading the psalm is like standing on holy ground, end quote. This section could only be hyperbole for David, but in the spirit, it describes in exacting detail what would happen to our Lord Jesus Christ, that they would encircle him, that they would pierce his hands and his feet, That not one of his bones would be broken. Remember how significant that was in the gospel story. That as they came to the three criminals on the cross, Jesus being what they thought was a criminal in the middle, they came to break the bones of them to hurry up their execution. But Jesus was already died and therefore they didn't break his bones. And not only that, of course, they divided his garments and they cast lots for his clothing. In verses 19 through 21, we see the sufferer's renewed prayer. David here is drawn back to prayer. And what else could he do? As he thought about the danger that he was facing, he comes back to prayer. God hasn't delivered him yet. And he has no resources available. And so he says, but you, O Lord, in verse 19, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. I love how relentless David is. He doesn't get the deliverance yet, but he just keeps on coming back. He's persistent in his prayer. And I just think of the many times in Jesus's ministry when he teaches about the importance of persistence in prayer. That if we just keep knocking and we keep on asking and we keep on seeking, that there's something about that level of persistence in prayer that just grips the heart of the Father. And David is in such agony and it's such a distressing situation that he won't stop praying. He's going to pray until they actually drag him into the street and kill him. Or until God delivers him. And that's exactly what happens in verse 21 B. 
In verse 21b, the entire psalm pivots, and we now see the sufferer's deliverance. It says, you have rescued me, past tense, from the horns of the wild oxen. This is so dramatic that it almost feels like there are two psalms that are actually squished together in Psalm 22. It's so dramatic that the New International Version doesn't even translate it that way. It continues to translate it as a plea for deliverance from the wild oxen. But literally, literally in the Hebrew, it says that God has heard him. Thus, God has delivered him from the wild oxen, which is how the ESV translates it. Now, what happened here? We don't know exactly. It could be that David got a word from the Lord, which we've seen happen in other Psalms. Or maybe he got news from somebody else of deliverance. Maybe something happened. Maybe his enemies were defeated remarkably, remarkably by the Lord. We're not sure. I think of Hezekiah's experience, though. King Hezekiah received news that he was going to die. And he was distressed, as you would be if somebody walked up to you and said, you're going to die. And so he went and he prayed. And he pleaded with the Lord and God sent Isaiah to give him a word. Here's the story, Isaiah 38, 1 through 5. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, Amos came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Now, it's scary enough if a doctor tells you that, but imagine a prophet of the Lord coming and saying to you, get your, get your affairs in order. You're going to die, buddy. And so Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and he prays to the Lord. And he says, please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. Just a dramatic reversal of Hezekiah's fortune. And you can imagine that Hezekiah went from weeping bitterly and praying to praise and rejoicing, just as David does in Psalm 22. So perhaps something like that happened to David. For Jesus, though, the deliverance comes through death, not through avoidance of death. As Jesus yielded up his spirit on the cross, we read these words in Matthew 27, 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. And what that means is that deliverance did come. What that meant is that Jesus' offering for our sin, his sacrifice for our sin was accepted by the Father. And now that veil of separation between the Holy of Holies and God's presence and the people was torn from top to bottom. God himself tearing that veil because Christ's sacrifice was enough. Our sins are paid for. Well, because of this deliverance, the psalm shifts in conclusion here into praise. The first half of the psalm, again, was about the sufferer's plight. The second part of it is the delivered one's praise. Look at verse 22. He now says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And then in verse 24, he tells them of God's deliverance. 
For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. What an encouragement for every single Christian who suffers. Even though in our suffering, we might feel like God has abandoned us. We might feel like God has turned a deaf ear to us. He does not hear me when I'm crying. Listen, nothing could be further from the truth. God will never despise his people as we come to him. God will never turn a deaf ear to our cries. He hears us. He's listening. He's aware. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but Hebrews 2.12 connects verse 22 to Jesus. And like David, Jesus too tells of God's deliverance of him to his brothers. When God raised Jesus from the dead, Jesus went and appeared many times to his disciples, proving to them that God vindicated him, proving to them that God delivered him by raising him from the grave. And then, of course, Jesus commissioned his followers and us by extension with going and telling that great news to the nations. We call that the Great Commission. Verses 27 through 31 envision the fruit that would result from God's deliverance. Look at verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. I love that. Do you see the expansive uh, vision of what would result from God's deliverance of the Messiah, Jesus? The fruit that results from that will spread throughout time and space. Space and that salvation would reach the ends of the earth. That salvation would reach every single family and every single nation under the heavens. And time and that salvation would come to future generations. There's a promise here that salvation would reach people that are not even yet born. That future generations are going to hear of God's deliverance. And family, this is exactly what has happened as the church has gone forward for the last 2,000 years. Preaching the good news of the gospel. And people on every single continent have turned to Christ by faith. And experience their own deliverance of their sins. To quote Keller again, Tim Keller says, Our mission to the world tells the good news of God's salvation to all classes, the poor in verse 26 and the rich in verse 29, to all races and nations in verse 27, and to all generations in verse 30. What is this universal message? It is that salvation is something not that we attain but that he attains and gives. He has done it, cries David. It is finished, cries Jesus. Psalm 22 has been rightly called the Psalm of the Cross. And we've seen why this morning. This Psalm points our attention to 
the suffering of Jesus for the sins of his people. But I would suggest that it's also the psalm of the resurrection and the ascension. Because Psalm 22 goes on to show us the global reach of the gospel, that the resurrected Jesus was going to make his name and his work known among the nations through his people. For anyone who has ever felt, even for a moment, God forsaken in your life, Psalm 22 is a wonderful reminder that God's delays are not denials. He will never despise the afflicted. He will never hide his face from his people. He will hear us when we cry. In fact, he already has heard us and responded to the deepest cry of every single heart. Whether you're aware of it or not, your deepest need and the deepest cry of the human heart is for forgiveness of your sins so that you can be reconciled to the God who created you and loves you. And 2,000 years ago, the very Jesus who Psalm 22 was pointing to willingly went to the cross where he suffered and he died for your sins so that you could be forgiven and so that you could be reconciled to God and so that you could have his righteousness. So God has already given us the greatest deliverance that we could ever need and that we could ever ask for. As Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. As David said in Psalm 22, he has done it. So for all of us this morning who come to God by faith, he will, as verse 26 put it, make our hearts live forever. What greater deliverance could anyone ask for? Let's pray together.